All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in today's episode. Before we get started, we'd like to let you know that the Uncommon Gem podcast is an adult content show, meaning we may go into explicit detail or say some explicit words when talking about today's subjects. We also like to inform you that we're not paid or sponsored by any of the donations or charities in the episode. We simply just are giving it a shout out and hopefully spreading the word on some good causes. Thanks again for tuning in and let's get on with the show. Folks, we are back with episode 20, Eventy. We're getting up there. We're getting up there. We're past the teens. We're now in the 20s. Amazing. Very, very happy to be back. I'm Kevin Espiz, the host, obviously. But if you're new, thanks for checking us out. Thanks for hopping on. Hope you've been enjoying the show. Hope you've been enjoying the past couple episodes. And yeah, uh, real exciting stuff, folks. You know, this past weekend, I actually saw the movie Zola. It's going to be a really quick shout out for that movie because if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Honestly, for one, it's good to be back in movie theaters again. But for two, that movie just slaps. It's just so good and so funny. I really want to shout out the director, Janixa Bravo, as well as the cast. Just a super good movie. I highly recommend it. Well, honestly, it's really a big joy of mine to have this guest on our show today. Uh, One of my close friends that I met through improv comedy. But before we get even get into it, we got to go through some titles that she has because she has lived quite a life. I'm talking about DJing. I'm talking about being a fashion icon. I'm talking about even being a sex icon. Truly, honestly, one of the most genuine people I've ever met in my life. Folks, please welcome to the show. Fun, fun, yay. Hi, thank you so much. What a (laughs) crazy intro that I was not expecting. And I feel so flattered. Thank you so much. I had to let the people know. I had to let the people know. Oh man, fun fun. For one, it's so good seeing you. It's been a whole pandemic and then some since I've seen you. And yeah. I'm just so happy to talk to you right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. I feel so happy to connect with you right now. Like I miss being in real life with you because normally <laughs> we're doing like the dumbest shit ever. Uh, like playing bunny bunny or <laughs> is that what it's called? <laughs> it is called bunny bunny, yeah. Okay. Uh the improv we're doing games. Really silly shit together. <laughs> I miss doing that in person so much. Uh, me too. Big same, big same. And honestly, with our crew of improv people, um, I forgot to mention, yeah, Fun Fun is part of our indie improv team, the Sexy Little Carrots. <laughs> Shout out to everyone a part of that crew. Uh, really miss yes, everyone Yes, I miss everyone <laughs> there too. Um, yeah, let's definitely dig into that because actually we had Howard on the show earlier on and we also met. I saw that. Yeah, so he was in our 301 class and that's how we met. I want to I want to talk about the 301 class because I feel like that's such a special moment for all of us. Like whoever yeah, was in that class totally. like walked away with something special. So I kind of like, man, it, it, again, I think I said in that episode too, but how everyone just gelled together. Like it was just so impressive. Yeah, I felt like in my other classes, probably because everyone's just like new to improv and scared. My other classes, I felt like I didn't really have a connection with other people. But with you guys, it just felt like, okay, yeah, let's do this. Like, (laughs) let's explore how stupid we can be. And like, let's just do this. So that was such a nice thing for me. And I was so intimidated to like, just be an improv anyways. So (laughs) it was really nice to have you guys. Uh, I and mean, it's honestly the same opinion of mine. I feel like it, that class particularly like really made us all stronger as performers. Like it, it really brought the best out of all of us. Yeah, I think also like once we formed our kind of group and we started practicing with Jake, like mm. I think that was the game changer. And it's kind of cool to see all these people that worked alongside us like blow up on social media like jake is getting a, a huge following oh my god right now he's and he, then... the problem with jake is that he's too funny it's like insane how all of his tiktoks <laughs> have made me laugh in tears like, he's so funny i mean he just <laughs> fucking he just gets it like he just <laughs> knows all the different ways to parody people and like different <laughs> characters so um yeah. shout out to jake yeah jake cornell y'all check him out check him out very funny guy Awesome. Fun, fun. Well, let's talk about you. I mean, you've lived such an awesome life. You have such a fun adventure. Let's definitely get into your your upbringings, how, how you came about to where you are now. Yeah. So 
I guess it starts with my name being Fun Fun <laughs> because uh, you can't have a name that's Fun Fun Yay and live a boring life. So I guess I just had to like live up to it. My parents gave me like a lot of pressure, I guess, with mm-hmm. that name. <laughs> so yeah, I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. I'm in Arizona right now, actually. Um, I'm about oh, to I go visit my parents. <laughs> yeah, you know, I went outside for a walk and it was like, I walked for like five minutes and then I was like, I'm going to go back home because <laughs> it's too hot. but anyways yeah I grew up in Tucson Arizona and it's actually a really cool town to live in because it has a lot of vintage clothing record shopping and it has like this cool like hippie kind of vibe where there's like there was a lot of like intimate shows I got to see the rapture and like the gossip before they were like huge names and like lots of shows like that so Tucson was a really cool place to kind of grow up. But since I was young, since I was like seven, I always wanted to be a fashion designer. So when I graduated high school, I decided to move to New York to study fashion. Well, actually, (laughs) I'm totally missing this chunk of my life, but (laughs) I actually did go to college here in Arizona at the U of A. And I was trying to make this like fashion design degree happen. And then I was like, what the hell am I doing? So I decided to move to New York to go to fashion school. So I had kind of a late start. Then I graduated from FIT after I went there for four years. And I kind of like got into nightlife. As one does, you know, as one does. <laughs> I think that's kind of like a rite of passage, right? Like <laughs> Once you move New to New York, York, you just kind of do it, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of weird, and I totally became an alcoholic, but I made it through. But I did also make like a, a lot of great friends and learned a lot about New York culture, which is really cool and I don't know, just like had <laughs> tons of fun dancing on banquettes falling off of banquettes, you know, that kind of thing, sleeping behind the DJ booth. I don't know if you had that experience, but I love it. Love it. I love it. And now it, well, after the pandemic, that's all I want, honestly. That's <laughs> I would love to fall off banquette. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm feeling kind of like scared. Like I went out the other day like for the first time and it was like a line around the block. We went into this place and it was like huge club and like it was shoulder to shoulder and I was like the only person wearing a mask it feels like the world's moving a little too fast for what's going on inside of it yeah yeah exactly and especially with the delta variant it just feels so uncertain stay safe out there y'all get get tested wear your mask (laughs) just because you're vaccinated does not mean you stop getting tested by the way I heard someone say that to me and I'm like why would you stop? (laughs) Yeah, actually, I know a few friends that got COVID and after they've been vaccinated. So just be careful, Mm -hmm. um, everyone out there. We still don't know what's going on. So better safe than sorry, I guess. (laughs) So where were we? So yeah, I did a whole bunch of nightlife hosting and stuff like that. And We actually won some awards through Paper Magazine and Time Out Magazine, I think, where I I started hosting with my friends this party called Six Six Six, and we used to like dress up. We used to make our own costumes every night, and we used to host five nights a week, but we had a Tuesday night party at Happy Ending when it was cool and it had like this downstairs part. And for those of you guys who don't live in New York and don't know about happy ending during that time, it used to be a gay massage parlor and downstairs they had this like spa kind of basement where it's all tile and everything. So we used to have like crazy parties down there and like we used to like bring cake and have like food fights and (laughs) there was tons of like champagne. So you would come in and I would like throw champagne down your throat and and everyone would make out with everyone. And (laughs) yeah, we had these like outfits that and themes that people would come and like expect us to be in these like crazy costumes. So from that, people were like, 
oh my God, you guys should like start your own fashion line and everything. And I was like, well, this kind of like lines up with what I wanted to do since I was seven. I always wanted to have my own fashion brand. So I did it. I started a fashion label called Savant and I don't know how I did it, but I did it like I had this mentor named Ben Cho, who was also in nightlife. Um, I don't know if you ever went to this place in the West Village called Sway. Oh, no. He used to have like Morrissey Smith's night and everything was Morrissey and Smith's related. So he would play all Smith's songs or all Morrissey songs. And like here and there, some like Kate Bush songs. (laughs) Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> and it was really cool. And it was like at a different time where you could smoke inside. And it was pretty wild too. But anyways, Ben Cho, he was a Vogue fashion, like indie designer darling. And he was like best friends with Chloe Sevigny. And sadly, he's not with us anymore. But he was my fashion mentor. Um, he used to have like these fashion shows and I was like, how do you do it? And so he would like just gather his friends in his living room and like we would sew for like days and days. We'd stay up really late and sew together. And it was funny because all his friends turned out to be really famous people like Dan Colin and like Chloe Sevigny, like I said, and like Dash Snow was one of his like best friends and we like stayed up and made drink beers and like just made his fashion show so I kind of like took direction from him and did that on my own when I started my own brand and like kind of like assembled a group of friends to make my first fashion show and that's how I kind of did all of my fashion shows and luckily at that time I was working in at YSL in luxury retail. And I was able to make some connections with some people at Vogue and was able to get my stuff in Vogue. So that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, let's give it up. (laughs) Thank you. So yeah, it was really weird. And I'm glad that I kind of did it in a really indie way. But I was so naive when I did like looking back on it. I'm like, I was so naive and I (laughs) didn't know what the fuck I was doing at all. Um, And since I didn't know what I was doing, it was hard for me to like do the business side of it. And so after like five years kind of of doing it and like kind of just, I was funding it all on my own. Mm. Um, Luckily I had a good job where I could, you know, spend some money on, on making these fashion shows to happen and photo shoots and stuff like that. But I really did not know what I was doing uh, (laughs) as a business. And I realized that in order to have a very thriving fashion brand, you actually need to be a millionaire. (laughs) You need to be like really wealthy in order and like well-connected in order Mm -hmm. for it to like happen. And that's something that they don't teach you in fashion school, but it's not a necessary component, but it's like what most people have that are like established brands. Dollars run everything, unfortunately, in the capitalism of America and and actually the world, but. I know. Uh, And uh, it's terrible. Shout outs to you, honestly, especially you being <laughs> an Asian woman too. like starting that on your own. That's truly something impressive and a feat to hold, you know? Thank you. Yeah, I just um, I kind of didn't think about it like that early when I was doing it. It was just like I've always just wanted to create things and kind of share it with the world. So I'm still continuing with this journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, we definitely got to talk about one thing you created and founded, too, which is your precious baby that I love so much. Chow downtown. <laughs> One of the greatest treats to the world and also just a really fun way to learn how to cook great food. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. <laughs> I cannot deal with all these compliments. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I started Chow Downtown um, because I was actually having some health issues myself um, after doing like all this nightlife and all this crazy um, stuff with like alcohol and just staying up late and like working and working and working. 
I was kind of exhausted and I was having like these periods for a really long time. And I hope you don't mind that we're going to jump into some women's health issues because the world doesn't talk about it enough. So I was having like these crazy heavy periods for like a month and it was like destroying my life. And I went to the doctor and they told me that I had to have some sort of surgery where I had to have polyps removed from my uterus. And I did this surgery and then they were like, they diagnosed me with something called PCOS. So then they were like, oh, you have to go on birth control. And then I didn't want to go on birth control because it's like synthetic hormones that will like fuck with you, you know? Mm -hmm. And that's something that people don't talk about either too much. And so I found out that you can heal your body with diet. I found out that 70% of chronic diseases are preventable through diet. And I was like, what the fuck? Why am I just learning this? Why am I in my thirties? And I just am learning this, you know, like, yeah. And like, you know, people at that time, the wellness thing wasn't like a huge thing. Goop wasn't a thing like, or it was just becoming a thing. And they don't really talk about how real foods can like really help us. It's more of this like capitalistic kind of thing where they treat things after the fact that you're sick, not preventable. That really changed my life. And I saw, I had another friend who was like, who was a coworker and he had just had a new baby and he was like really like a hundred pounds overweight. And he started drinking water and started changing his diet as well. And he like lost all this weight and became like interested in doing a lot of fitness and eating healthfully. And so I was like, you know what? I need to share this information with other people. And I was finding that the information that was out there, like the goop that was coming out, it was all white women like from California that were like, Hey, do yoga and like drink an avocado smoothie or whatever, a kale smoothie. And like, you'll be fine. And I was just like, this is dumb. (laughs) (laughs) This is not accessible. And this, I wanted to do it in a way that was more exciting in a way that was more New York in a way that was, was more inclusive for other people, for people that aren't rich white ladies that live on the beach. Right. (laughs) Right. Like health should be for everyone and health accessibility should be for everyone. So I wanted to make some sort of um, media that was just more palatable and more fun and less serious and, and less like you need to eat your greens kind of thing. (laughs) So I was just like, you know what sells sex. Mm (laughs) And so um, sex and food are both like a sensual thing for me and they're both pleasure filled. And like, I think that healthy food should be pleasurable. So I thought it would be a cool spin to have them together kind of as this like health should be pleasurable and just as sex is. I love it. And honestly, folks, if you check out the videos, by the way, it's Chow Downtown, C-I-A-O. Downtown. Yeah, Chow, like Italian Chow. I, <laughs> I, during college, I had a brief stint in Italy. So I lived there for like a year. So that kind of had a lot of influence on me. And um, also, it's kind of based off of that Edie Sedgwick movie, Chow Manhattan. So that's where it's kind of from. Awesome. What I was going to say was that so many of the videos, you can watch them on YouTube or even your own Instagram. Again, Chow Downtown. And so many of these videos, they're all so very cleverly written, but also the edits and all that stuff is like designed in this layer layer of sensuality, as you're saying, but in a fun way. Like, honestly, like I believe one of your first videos is you shaving like cauliflower rice uh, over your crop. Like, it's just like... (laughs) It's a funny site because you're also adding this voiceover that's really hilarious, but also informational, you know, and it's a lot of videos like that. Honestly, they do make cooking a lot more fun because you're engaged with the video, you know. Thank you so much. Yeah, Um, yeah, I just wanted it to be kind of like funny 
and have like double entendre as uh, a comic kind of relief for all the serious information. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's beautiful. It really is because I also like how you mentioned how you're just trying to make sure people eat healthier because that's the thing. Like all the food is mainly vegetarian or vegan friendly. You know, it's it's mainly mm-hmm. based on that focus of yes, this heals your body. Also, happens to taste very fucking delicious, and that's why I really love. Thank you. Um, yeah, my, the goal of that was kind of like to have people just watch it and then be like, not necessarily watch it for I need to eat something healthy, but just watch it for entertainment value. And then afterwards be like, oh, actually, I kind of want to make that. It looks good, you know, and just convert people that weren't expecting to be health fanatics become healthy. And folks, believe me, I, I've actually eaten some of Fun Fun's food before, and it is just so worth it. I re- actually remember when you were on Debbie's show way back when. when you oh, made, yeah. Uh, the Salty Chocolate Ball is live. That was such a fun <laughs> show. That was such a fun show. <laughs> that was really fun. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that I can make salty chocolate balls for everyone to eat sometime. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Cool. So I think that's a good segue to the donation if you're ready to go that. Yeah, totally. So I chose the Heal Alliance, which is a really great charity to give to just because it aligns with everything that I have talked about so far. I really love the Heal Alliance's mission. The Heal Alliance is a multi-sector, multi-racial coalition building collective power to transform our food and farm systems. They represent over 2 million rural and urban farmers, fishers, farm and food chain workers, indigenous groups, scientists, public health advocates, policy experts, community organizers, and activists. And what I love about that is that it's, they're all inclusive and they have this huge community that kind of touches all sections of the food industry which is, I think, something that is very largely ignored in our country. Food is such a huge issue. And not only is it important for us to be eating healthfully, but eating healthfully impacts our environment. It impacts workers' rights. So that's why I chose this um, charity, because Food, whether like the choices that you make for food every day impact not only you, but impact everything in this world. So to be able to talk about this is so important right now, as we were talking about, like everything is kind of politics and capitalist driven. So what I love about Heal Alliance is that they have a platform in order to be an advocate for food justice. And they're very strategic about what they want to get accomplished. So they have a 10, it's like a 10 point platform. That's like a call to action to achieve political transformation for food justice. And the first part of their platform is dignity for food workers. Then opportunity for all producers, fair and competitive markets, resilient regional economies. Um, Then they're focused on health by dumping junk food. They're increasing food literacy and transparency and real food in every hood. And then for the environment, they want to phase out factory farming promote sustainable farming, fishing, and ranching, and close the loop on waste, runoff, and energy. I mean, there's so much to talk about in all of these things. Too. Oh, I, I honestly, I love this cause too, because it, you were actually, over the summer, over the last year, I mean, you were actually posting up a couple things on Instagram that really opened up my eyes, how, just how you just said it earlier, how each decision you make to what you eat really affects the world, like on the larger scale economy, global warming issues like all that everything revolves around that one decision and one thing I noticed and you you definitely call it out every now and again on Instagram is how you go to these low-income neighborhoods and there's nothing but fast food junk food and not even a grocery store around you know like you only have the options to eat this fast food so this kind of 
is supporting the fact that, you know, no, these people need markets. These people need, it also helps like cultures, you know, it also helps like the people in those environments express their cultures when they have different avenues to choose food, not just, you know, every McDonald's every two blocks or this fat food company. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a, being sick is a business for Mm. the government. I mean, that's why we don't have, you know, universal healthcare and all this stuff. And that's why these fast food chains are strategically placed in low income neighborhoods that predominantly affect BIPOC. And it's because if we all had real food and access to healthy foods, it would be better for everyone, but it's not necessarily a moneymaker for the Mm. government. Um, So real food healthy food that's um, responsibly sourced and sustainably grown is more expensive. And the people that have access to that are wealthy people, unfortunately. So what's great about these kinds of platforms, there's a lot of food justice happening, actually. But I love this platform um, that Heal has put up because it kind of addresses all of those things. You know, there's also problems within the farming industry. Mm-hmm. Like the government has subsidies for the three different crops. So for corn, wheat, and soy. And so if farmers grow those, they're compensated more for growing those. Because of that, monocropping happens. And because of that, our soils become more depleted. So I don't know if you know this, but there's only 60 more harvests left in our soils. So only 60 years more left of like growing nutrient dense foods. Yeah. So we're running out of time. So, I mean, food justice needs to happen now. And we all need to kind of play a part in it. Um, another thing that I love about Heal is that they recognize that it's more of a group effort to do this. And like a lot of people will say, like, I mean, it does matter what we do, you know, mm-hmm. like if you can control what you can do, which I think is actually a privilege, like if you can control your choices in food, then that's like, that's a privilege, right? But a lot of people can't. So what we have to do is organize together and, you know, make political change and ask our congressmen and congresswomen and congresspeople to make changes in policy that will benefit our communities, the environment, and just be responsible, socially responsible. And one thing I saw on this website is just that, so I've been doing this show for 20 episodes now, right? Definitely checked Mm -hmm. out many, many charities, many donations. And one thing I noticed is there's not a lot of like certain websites definitely do it. I'm not saying all of them, but there's not a lot of upkeep for modern times. Like there are still some charity websites I saw doing the show that were acting like COVID was just announced and they're like not really going into the new procedures that they have going on. You know what I mean? Yeah. And what I like about Heal Food Alliance is that they currently right now are discussing how they're going to send out these bills to Biden's office, like literally send it to the president himself to enact these kind of changes that we do necessarily need. And that really like stuck out to me just because it's one of their very first pages that you see like, hey, Biden, we need this, you know, and not many websites do that. Not many organizations do that. Yeah, I think that it comes with their like you know, the strength in numbers kind of thing, because they work with 50 different organizations that represent 2 million agricultural and health and food advocates. So yeah, it's like strength in numbers. Like we have to all come together in order to make this change. Like, I know, I don't know. I I have a feeling that your (laughs) listeners will be (laughs) pro-socialist, but um, (laughs) I like the things that socialists say where they're like, they have money, but we have people. So Mm. we have to, you know, organize and get together and come together and fight for these things because our lives and our future and our planet depend on it. 
Could not have said it better myself. Could not have said it better <laughs> myself. Folks, so definitely check it out. And also they have a whole bunch of research on the website. So you get into more of what we're talking about, learn a whole a lot about it too. So it's Heal Food Alliance. That's H-E-A-L foodalliance.org. Mm-hmm. But yeah, definitely check it out, folks. And, you know, definitely spread the information to your friends. I feel the more we spread this knowledge, the more people learn about it, the better we can kind of maintain. And also, as Funfun was saying, get those strength in numbers, you know? Yeah. I mean, we're just scratching the surface here. So please, if anything, like do some research on food policy and about farmers and what the strife of farmers in America are going through because it's a lot and it affects even like the immigrant community, which is also so important to our food system and it affects the indigenous people. It touches on all of the human rights things that are happening right now. So please like do more research on it if you don't know about it. A a good place to go to is uh, foodtank.com, I think. I just looked, I just looked up foot tank <laughs> and I was like, uh, oops, that's probably not what we're looking for. <laughs> it's the foot fetish ranking website. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's foodtank.com and it's a think tank for food and it is hosted by this woman named Danny Nuremberg and she talks She has like a whole bunch of different people that talk about food security, food tech, food policy, sustainable agricultural, and everything that you can think of. So um, I think that's a really great resource to kind of like dive into if you want to learn more about food, how it affects our communities and our world. So please check that out too. Awesome. Well, Folks, I'm honestly really excited to get into this Uncommon Gem today. Uh, Fun, fun. Do you mind telling the good people at home what we're going to be talking about for the Uncommon Gem? (laughs) Yes, we are going to be talking about a film from 1963 called An Actor's Revenge by director Kon Ichikawa. And it's one of my most favorite movies. And we're going to talk about why. <laughs> love it. Love it. I, so the first time I ever watched it because of your recommendation. And honestly, I immediately was into it just from the very introduction. But yeah, let's definitely get into it. When did you first like stumble upon this movie? I kind of just like found it on accident. Um, I had like just bought the Criterion Access thing mm. because I think I wanted to watch some like film noir. I always want to watch film noir, but <laughs> I found it because it was like at the top of the search list on Criterion film (laughs) section um, because it starts with an A. And then I was like, oh, shit, Japanese. Oh, shit, 60s. (laughs) And I read that it was like about, you know, a story about retribution and revenge. And it just sounded really cool. So once I started watching it, I was like, holy shit, how is this (laughs) movie like? checking all the boxes because it has the cinematography is just like Mm. stunning like the colors the lighting the way that the director uses widescreen and the way that he fills the negative and positive spaces with light and color is just like incredible also that the film uses this like modernist elements with like jazz interludes it's true it's true (laughs) anytime anytime a thief is on camera there's like this really smoky jazz in the background (laughs) yeah and i love like being i don't know other people in in the world love jazz too but i feel like being a new yorker you're just like you you have a different relationship to jazz and i'm just like oh my god me as a new yorker i love jazz (laughs) like to have that in there and there's humor in it there's Mm -hmm. like dramatic serious moments in it there's political satire in it there's just the beauty of Japanese culture in it I like that it touches on kind of like this classist thing and to me it feels like a Japanese Shakespeare kind of play oh I was actually gonna say that later on yeah but it is totally on that money like definitely like (laughs) 
it just has that vibe of just someone's always backstabbing the next person on on stage or something's always like interluding the other we should probably describe what the movie is so that way people can kind of know too. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's it, like like Fun Fun was saying, it is set in I believe the 1800s, right in Japan. I think that's yeah. what it's said. Uh-huh. And it is about a uh, kabuki theater actor performing as a woman, and mm-hmm. his name is Yuki Nojo. And his parents unfortunately killed themselves because they were forced into financial troubles due to these kind of feudal lords running over crops yeah. of rice and all these kind of things and really like taking away their money and putting them in this struggle. So unfortunately both his parents killed themselves. So it's kind of the story and how he wants to enact his revenge and kill these three people who have ruined his life. And yeah. man, it is, it is, it is a journey and it is quite an awesome one. If you ask me. Yeah. Tell me what you <laughs> liked about it. So I'm on the same wavelength. So for those that don't know, Kabuki theater is like this, it like Funko was saying, it's kind of like the Shakespeare of Japan in a way. It's very dramatic, really fun storytelling, but they have these very long, wide stages. So like you were mentioning the widescreen shots, every shot of the Kabuki theater is very widescreen so you can see the whole stage, but that like kind of keeps on going throughout the film. Like there's stages throughout the film that look like a Kabuki theater setting. There's a very blurry line in the movie between theater and it being an actual movie. Sometimes you can see the stage and then it just bleeds on to the rest of the story. And all of the um, shots are actually like interior shots. Even if they're outside, they're like, you know, it feels like it's on a stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's so interesting because it feels so dynamic still um, in terms of the setting. But I love that it's like play within a play. And um, there's such like a blurry line between all of that. Exactly. It, what I do also like about that dynamic too, is that like you're saying, so sometimes they'll blend this like weird lighting and all of a sudden like Yuki Nojo's eyes are just very prominent on screen. And you're just like, whoa, like the transition to that like shot between the the wide shot is just so awesome. And yeah, there's there's really cool lighting, really cool color effects in this whole movie. And it's, it's crazy to also think that again, this is made in the sixties, like, this kind of looks like a like a more modern take on filmmaking nowadays, but I guess it also kind of shows how a lot of filmmakers borrow from old movies too. But <laughs> yeah, interesting facts. Okay, so <laughs> I, I have a few interesting facts about this movie. Okay. So so the director Kon Ichikawa he filmed this movie during the height of his film career, and he was actually assigned this project through the studio. The studio is called Daie Studio. And they assigned it to him kind of kind of as a punishment because the last movie that he made was really expensive. So they're like, oh, take this movie. And it was an um, old movie that they actually had done in 1935 with the same star, Kazuo Hasegawa. That's the name of the actor that plays Yuki Nojo and he actually played that same actor in the original in oh, wow. 1935 and it's funny because a lot of the critics were saying that even though he was given this project that was like oh this is like a shitty project for you to do like he took it and he he along with his screen his favorite screenwriter his wife Nato Wada they like turned it around and made made it this like modern like edgy masterpiece um so in that way it's like a director's revenge <laughs> ah like it i love that i love yeah. that let your directors yeah. control their movie damn it that's that's yeah. the thing that hollywood really fucks up and that's what this movie upholds you know this movie really you could tell this these people in the movie had a whole vision they nailed it they really hit the whole vision Yeah. And another thing that I found out that was really interesting is that the director, he was also his main inspiration is Walt Disney, which (laughs) I thought was so interesting. Um, But then it made sense because of all the colors and everything Mm -hmm. and the way that he kind of animates his screens. I want to kind of get into the Thieves because I like the Thieves in this movie. They're, <laughs> they're kind of like, I don't know how to describe it. Like you had mentioned how Shakespeare kind of, it, it's very Shakespearean, but there's like 
side characters kind of accelerate the story, but also just like there to have fun. Yeah, they provide such a comic relief. One of the the main thieves, um, his name is Yamitoro. Uh, Yamitoro is that his name? I believe so. Okay, um, yeah, the main thief. He is also played by the same actor, Kazu. <laughs> Sorry, I can't say it correctly. Kazuo Hasegawa. When I was watching the movie last night, I literally was like, am I tripping or is that the same? Because <laughs> they do like a really fun way whenever Yuki Nojo and this character are talking, they like have the back of one character facing the camera. Yeah. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, it's because it's the same actor and mm. um, they make light of it too in the movie where That's true. The, the one female thief What's her name? Ohatsu. Ohatsu, that's correct. So Ohatsu is like, oh, you look like <laughs> you look uh, like him. Ohatsu is very funny too because she has the hots. She eventually discovers love for Yukinojo after <laughs> finding out more about Yukinojo. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> this is actually a rabbit hole that I went down in after like watching it and in, in preparation for this podcast is. I thought it was really intriguing that all of the women were kind of like infatuated with Yuki Nojo. And then all the guys were kind of too. Mm -hmm. And I learned about, so in Kabuki theater, there is a name for a male actor who plays a female role and it's called an Onagata. And they, well, Yuki Nojo plays kind of uh, female on stage, but also never goes out as a male in, in real life, which I thought was really interesting. And then I found out about this third gender in Japan at this time, and it's called the Wakashu. And during this time in Japan, sexuality and gender was way more fluid and it was really weird because the wakashu, it describes a young man who reached puberty but not yet attained full-fledged manhood and was eligible for sexual relationships with both women and men. Mm. And I guess it was like considered the ultimate beauty at the time to be like a young man. And it's kind of, it, it changed once Western influences kind of like came in and made like heterosexual sexuality. But I think it's really cool to think about, or, or it was really cool to find out about because I also found out that these men in the theater were, were just like so eroticized and that I just thought it was interesting that like both men and women found these wakashu. It, I just thought it was like really <laughs> cool, the gender fluidity between everything and like the sexual fluidity of all of this stuff. And I thought that was really interesting in the movie that someone like Namiji. Oh, Namiji. Namiji. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. So Namije is the daughter of one of the generals that Yukinojo is trying to seek re retribution to. Mm -hmm. So her father is one of the persons that Yukinojo is trying to seek retribution for. And Namije is kind of like one of the casualties of this whole scenario because she's mm -hmm. an innocent woman and I just thought it was like really cool that she was like in love with a very like feminine character. And um, that's something that's not normal in uh, Western culture that I'm used to. So right. it, for me, it was. I think that's cool actually, isn't see. that the opening shot too? Is like she's literally like touching her chest because she's so infatuated with the performance. Like, yeah. From, from the moment she sees Yukinodo, she's like, wow. Yeah, totally. Um, like she falls head over heels for him. And mm -hmm. like, it's really cool to see this kind of like fluidity. One thing I, I really like about the fluidity too, is that as you mentioned, you know, most of the women are definitely like attracted to him. 
But they also do this fun thing where certain male characters still treat Yukinojo less than and or weaker. But mm-hmm. this is like probably my favorite thing about this whole fucking movie is that Yukinojo is a badass. <laughs> like, yeah, there because... are many scenes where they are in a fight with so many other samurais and does not get hurt one and also kills like three samurais in the movie in yeah. the most badass way. This is something that we didn't talk about. So Yukinojo was, you know, his parents committed suicide and then he was undertaken by the theater master, right? Or um, someone who was like the theater director. And then he also studied to become like master swordsman or samurai. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the story. And that's how he becomes like, I know Yukinojo is the coolest character (laughs) in all of it because he is so, he touches on all kind of, like he knows how to navigate the commoners and he knows mm. um the lower part of the social ranking so he knows what's going on politically but then he knows how to navigate the higher officials and then he knows how to be a badass swordsman and like can like kick anyone's ass <laughs> right. and never and, never gives up the guys once literally is still Yukinojo the female uh, actor the entire movie and like in the rare moments you do see like Yukinojo like slip, it is so like they do it so well in the movie of like making sure it's just the visual of the eyes and then like you see like slowly yeah. taking off the hair piece, taking off that, and it's just so beautifully shot. Yeah. It's such a complex story that I hope mm. that you guys get it and you are able to watch it because it's hard for I think it's hard to describe <laughs> how lovely this film is. Really quick, I want to ask you, what are some of your favorite scenes? In the beginning, there was like two different quotes that I really like. I wrote them down because I love them so much. Like in the beginning, there was like just a little commentary between the commoners, like between the thieves. And there's one thing that the thieves say that I think are really perceptive of the times. And it's still like (laughs) pretty relevant for right now. And this quote is... uh, People spend more when times are hard. And don't forget that times of economic uncertainty also brings thieves their greatest fame, which I thought was like very interesting considering our times right now and like our past president that we had and it still stands today. (laughs) Right, right. And then there was another part early on in the film where... Yukinojo's sensei, he's telling him about a scroll that he was going to give to Yukinojo to read. It was like a sacred scroll. And one of his... Oh, that's right. The apprentice like steals it. Yeah. The apprentice comes in and he's jealous and he's like, how dare you show this kid he just joined and you're going to show him a sacred scroll and not me. And so he steals it. And the sensei says, oh, don't worry, it's a blank scroll. And the purpose of that scroll was to remind me to never become too proud. Mm -hmm. When we master a skill and become famous, we forget the purity of purpose with which we first set out. The essence of a thing cannot be expressed in writing. And I really kind of like loved that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how that resonates with you, but oh, like for, for me as an artist, I feel like, I don't know, it just like really spoke to me. I think that was kind of like the a director's, I think he put it in for himself. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, yes. I don't know. I'm kind of like myself on this journey where I'm trying to like figure things out as an artist and not that to say that I'm famous, but just to come back to the purity of your purpose, I think mm. is a really beautiful thing. Oh, I love that fun fun. That's honestly, that's, that's what it's all about <laughs> folks, right? <laughs> yeah. That's, what, that's a problem. You know, you don't want your art to be taken away from you. You don't want your joy to be taken away from you. So yeah. Yeah. Love that. Honestly. Yeah. This movie, it, it is so beautifully shot. It's so beautifully written, but it really, it strikes a chord. It really does. I, I really walked away with this movie feeling like, you know, 
I had seen something clearly because I never watched it, but I had seen something I truly have never seen before, you know, in a movie, which I think is really something to uphold. It's obviously, as Fun Fun mentioned, it's on the Criterion channel, um, but it's also on the list of 1001 movies you need to see before you die by Steven Schneider. So that really. Oh, I didn't know that. It speaks to the power of the movie right there. Yeah. I was thinking, and I couldn't find it online, but I was like, I wonder if, you know, like Quentin Tarantino was like, watch this. And I was like, <laughs> oh, fuck, I have to do this. You know, like Kill Bill kind of thing. Yeah. Cause it's like these badass women that kind of like kill people. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, folks, we'll definitely check out Actors Revenge. Just an amazing film. Um, fun, fun. Before we stop talking about it, though, do you have any last words, anything you want to tell the people about an actor's revenge? Just to watch it and to kind of like maybe watch it two times because the second time I, I found so many more things to love about it. And I think that it really touches on so much that's happening today. So it's yeah. really cool to see something that, you know, is talking about masculine, feminine roles and kind of like talking about society hierarchies and all this stuff it just touches on everything that's happening right now even to like the food famine kind of thing with everything that's going on in our world Mm -hmm. uh it's there's so many parallels so watch it because life imitates art or art imitates life I don't know which way it goes. (laughs) Are we the movie? No. Uh, But yeah, honestly, yeah, really great movie. Folks, once again, also do please check out Heal Food Alliance. Again, H-E-A-L foodalliance.org. Really get into these causes, folks. You know, we we can do so much as people. We can do so much as a community to make sure that not only are our neighbors eating well, but even beyond that, the people who don't have so much access to food and really need the food too. So let's definitely check it out. Let's definitely support and fun fun please tell the people where they can check you out tell the people what you got going on yeah so you can check me out uh my instagram handle is at chow downtown it's c-i-a-o downtown like the italian chow and then that's my website as well and all of those link to my youtubes and stay tuned for more because i'm kind of like in this process of re revamping my channel and doing new things. So uh, I just did this. I don't know if you saw, but I just did this like art performance. That was like a Shibari. Um, I did. Art <laughs> performance, which You're was pretty fun. Dish, right? <laughs> yeah. It's actually, a, it's a, a live production of this, um, of one of my videos that I had existing already where I was just tied up, but I, I learned how to do shibari just for this thing because I thought it would be a little bit more theatrical. So um, yeah, check that out. Probably going to be doing more of those and (laughs) just hope I can connect with you all there. Hell yeah. And it's such fun stuff, folks. Any last words for the people before we head out here? No, just to take care of yourselves at this time and to be in the moment. Love it. Love it. Folks. As always, definitely check out Fun Fun. We'll be back again next week. Another episode, another Uncommon Gem coming for you real hot. Take care out there. All right, folks? Thank you.